Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about 2 Nephi chapters 3, 4, and 5. Now, I want to just give you a brief overview of these three chapters here in 2 Nephi. These chapters are part of Lehi's last discussion with his sons. And so chapter 3 begins with him speaking to his last born, and that's Joseph. And so it starts off, Thou wast born in the wilderness of mine afflictions. Yea, in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. And there's a lot of Josephs going on here. We have Lehi speaking to Joseph, his son, about Joseph Smith, but he's also referencing Joseph Smith's father. And the prophecies that Lehi is quoting from is from Joseph of Egypt. He says in verse 5, Wherefore, Joseph truly saw our day. And so Lehi has this testimony that Joseph, who lived way back in the Old Testament, Joseph of Egypt saw our day. Now remember, it's important to know this too, that Joseph preceded Moses. And so Joseph saw Moses and that he would be a deliverer. That's in verses 9 and 10. But Joseph of Egypt saw that a seer would come in the last days, and that's Joseph Smith, to convince people of the word of God. And then Lehi tells us, the word which has already gone forth among them, meaning the Bible. Joseph Smith, part of his mission is to convince the people in the latter days that the words of the Bible are true. So there's a lot going on in 2 Nephi 3. In 2 Nephi 4, Lehi dies. And there's some beautiful poetry that Nephi gives. Many people call it the Psalm of Nephi. And this is where we read Nephi saying, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. There's some really good material in 2 Nephi 4 where Nephi, from the depths of his soul, cries out to his God to help him to get through this most difficult time. And then finally in 2 Nephi 5, the Nephites and the Lamanites split there's a great division between Nephi and his people and the people that follow Laman and Lemuel. And it's a time of great sadness. And this is really setting up a lot of the things that are going to take place in the rest of the Book of Mormon. You see, these two peoples are at odds with each other for hundreds of years. And this is the beginning of that great division. And we read this here in 2 Nephi 5 that 30 years have passed since the time that Nephi left Jerusalem. And 30 years later, he discusses the fact that he's now engraving these things. And so it's clear that he wrote this record many years after these events. Now, in this chapter, there are are some difficult things that are spoken of in verse 21 about black and white, and we're going to get into that in this podcast. And so stay tuned. We'll discuss it in a bit. So now getting back to 2 Nephi 3, Let's talk about the prophecy about Joseph. 
So there's, there's a lot of ways to look at chapter 3. One way, do you remember, Nephi saw that the Gentiles would reject the restoration because they're blinded by these false ideas, their false religious ideas based on missing information. So they don't have plain and precious truths, and so that blinds them to the reality. And so one way to look at this is to say, wait a minute, Joseph Smith has been spoken about for eons. Joseph of Egypt spoke about Joseph Smith. And so here's Lehi telling his son Joseph about Joseph of Egypt prophesying of Joseph Smith. And so this is a confirmation that Joseph Smith has been in the cards from the beginning of time, that Joseph of Egypt saw Joseph Smith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to quote Joseph of Egypt. And Joseph is even going to name Joseph Smith and say, he's not only going to be named after me, he's going to be the name of his father. So he's going to be Joseph Jr. Joseph of Egypt calls Joseph Smith by name. The great seer in the latter days will be named Joseph. And here's what he's going to do. He mainly points to the fact that he will bring forth scripture and that scripture will be unified with other scripture. Now, Joseph's dad gave him a patriarchal blessing and in his blessing, he said this, I bless thee with the blessings of thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even the blessings of thy father, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Behold, He looked after his posterity in the last days when they should be scattered and driven by the Gentiles and wept before the Lord. He sought diligently to know from whence the Son would come who should bring forth the word of the Lord by which they, meaning Joseph's descendants, might be enlightened and brought back to the true fold. And his eyes beheld thee, my son. His heart rejoiced, and his soul was satisfied. I will bear solemn testimony of that. I believe with all my heart that Joseph Smith has been seen and foretold by all the prophets in the Old Testament. Joseph of Egypt took great comfort in knowing that his seed was going to be taken care of by someone named after him. Joseph Smith is the Latter-day Seer that Joseph of Egypt foretold. So one way to look at 2 Nephi chapter 3 is just a waving of the arms to say all of you who are blinded and you can't see that the restoration is the Lord restoring his truth on earth, you need to understand that this man, Joseph Smith, is the seer that has been predicted from the beginning of time. There's another way to look at it, and that is what is it that seers do? And so you know, if you read through chapter three, you can say, what is it that seers see? And there's a beautiful list of things that seers see. But the idea here is a testimony that Joseph is not an unknown character by the great prophets of the past. I I like verse 11. I mean, the whole chapter is excellent, but you know, if you're teaching, you're not going to cover the whole chapter, but look at verse 11, where it says, I'm going to give him power to bring forth my word. If you just do word count, nobody's brought more words of Scripture than Joseph. We don't have a prophet that's given us more. I mean, Isaiah's given us 66 really good chapters, but Joseph is this tool that's used by the Lord to bring so much. And I just want to reiterate, um, this is translated when he's 23. I counted him up, Mike. These are modern-day pages of Scripture. Moses gave us three—assuming Moses gave us the Pentateuch, which— 
That's a whole podcast. That's a whole podcast. <laughs> but assuming Moses gave us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses gave us 308 pages of Scripture. Paul, who gave us numerous epistles in the New Testament, gave us 123 pages of Scripture. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, gave us 105 pages of Scripture. Isaiah, in his marvelous writings in the Old Testament, gave us 81 pages of Scripture. John the Beloved, who gave us the Gospel of John, first and second, you know, the epistles of John and the book of Revelation, gave us 77 pages of Scripture. Those five, the the most prolific biblical writers, gave us a combined 694 pages of Scripture. Joseph Smith, combining just the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, gave us 873 pages of Scripture. And that doesn't include the Joseph Smith translation, the lectures on faith, the King Follett sermon, and so many things that we consider to be Scripture. This is just canonized Scripture. The five most prolific writers gave us 694 pages, and Joseph Smith gave us 873. I like in verse 12 where it says uh, that it's going to grow together. And so I just want to bear witness of that, that as you read the Book of Mormon, it will grow together with the witnesses of these other great prophetic writings. And Bryce, thanks for bringing that out. I, I want to get that in the show we'll notes. We'll get that's that in good. the show that's notes. That's great stuff. So there's a ton to do here in Second Nephi 3, but that's big picture. I'm just going to throw one more thing in because we live in a day where Joseph Smith is being beaten up. The world is trying to destroy the reputation of Joseph Smith, and I love verse 14, and I just shout this out to all the distractors. Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. It is my solemn witness that when all the dust settles, Joseph Smith's reputation will rise above. He was an honorable, honest loving, God-fearing, obedient man. And of that I testify. Thanks, Bryce. That's awesome. So that's Joseph. And chapter four is he's Let's do his to, grandkids. There's, there's yeah, a he's, great he's gonna, truth. Yeah. He's done Le- Laman, Lemuel. He's done Jacob and Joseph. We don't have his record to Nephi. We don't have a whole lot that he said to Sam, but now he addresses his grandchildren. And there's a wonderful truth here. He knew that his grandchildren, raised by Laman and Lemuel, were going to be taught wrong. So he says in verse 5, I leave a blessing upon you. I know that if you were brought up in the way that you should go, you wouldn't depart from it. Therefore, if you're cursed, I leave my blessing that the curse may be taken from you and be answered upon the heads of your parents. In other words, Heavenly Father understands exactly what we know, what we don't know, and will hold us accountable to what we have been taught. He lifts the curse of his grandchildren and places that upon the parents. See, Laman and Lemuel were taught right and chose wrong. Laman and Lemuel's children were taught wrong and did wrong. And the Lord says, I'm going to be merciful unto them. Yeah. And I think we need to be really, really careful when we judge each other. And when we look around and say, oh, well, clearly that person is not living up to expectations. But we have no idea what they've been taught, what they know, and what they don't know. We also have to be careful, I think, when we read Scripture. For example, 
there's this notion of corporate punishment and corporate blessings. And it's all throughout not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. If you've ever read Joshua, if you remember the story of Achan, where he goes into the city and he keeps some of the goods from the city. And if you read that narrative in Joshua, him and his family and his chickens and his goats and everybody is cursed by the Lord, because that was kind of the idea back then, is that if you did wrong, it cursed your whole family and vice versa. For example, Rahab, when she lets the spies in, her whole family and everyone associated with her is blessed. And then later in the biblical narrative in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel starts to draw distinctions. And he says, I think you're punished for what you do. And I can see Lehi wrestling with this. Lehi's seen the future. He sees his children, and then he sees his grandchildren. And I like that, Bryce, where you say, I'm going to try and lift this curse off of you and put it on your parents. And then not to play the devil's advocate, but how much of the Deuteronomistic Jewish apostate traditions have Laman and Lemuel received? And maybe there's some mercy for them too. Maybe in Lehi's heart, he's like, I get it how you guys are confused. And I love that quote by Joseph Smith, where he says, I get it. The story of what I've seen I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't experienced it. Yeah. One of my favorite scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants is Doctrine and Covenants section 46, verse 15, that says that God will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. And that's what's being portrayed here is that God is going to be merciful unto Laman and Lemuel's children because they just don't know better. And so I know this is a little lengthy. Bear with me if you want to fast forward and skip it. But I just have one, a wonderful example of this in everyday life. This is from Stephen Robinson's book, Following Christ. He says, many years ago when I was somewhere between 9 and 11, I participated in a community summer recreation program in the town where I grew up. I remember in particular a diving competition for the different age groups held at the community swimming pool. Some of the wealthier kids in our area had their own pools with diving boards, and they were pretty good amateur divers. But there was one kid my age from the less affluent part of town who didn't have his own pool. What he had was raw courage. While the rest of us did our crisp little swan dives, back dives, and jack knives, being ever so careful to arch our backs and point our toes, this young man was attempting backflips and one-and-a-halves and doubles and so on. But oh, was he sloppy. He seldom kept his feet together, he never pointed his toes, and he usually missed his vertical entry. The rest of us observed with smug satisfaction as the judges held up their scorecards that he consistently got lower marks than we did with our safe and simple dives. And we congratulated ourselves that we were actually the better divers. Quote, he's all hard and no finesse, we would tell ourselves. After all, we keep our feet together and point our toes. The announcement of the winners was a great shock to us, for the brave young lad with the flips had apparently beaten us all. However, I had kept track of the scores in my head, and I knew that I knew with the arrogance of limited information that the math didn't add up. I had consistently outscored the boy with the flips, and so certain that an injustice had been perpetrated, I stormed the scorer's table and demanded an explanation. Degree of difficulty, the scorer replied matter-of-factly as he looked me in the eye. Sure, you had better form, but he did harder dives. When you factor in degree of difficulty, he beat you hands down, kid. Until that moment, I hadn't known that some dives were awarded extra credit because of their greater difficulty. That's Layman and Lemuel's grandchildren. 
Some dives are awarded extra credit because of their greater difficulty. I have a friend to whom life has been unkind. Though she married in the temple, her husband proved unfaithful and eventually abandoned her and their small children. Since she has never been paid a penny for child support, my friend works full-time to support herself and her kids. For several years, she also went to school at night to improve her financial situation. Therefore, of necessity, she could not be with her children as much as she would have liked and could not always give them the guidance and discipline they needed. It just wasn't possible in her, in her difficult circumstances. One result of her less-than-perfect family situation was troubled teenagers. Now in middle age, she is faced with raising some of her grandchildren, again all alone. Without a faithful companion, without the priesthood in her home, without the blessings that are realized where the ideal family setting is possible. It is almost inevitable that my friend should feel that her scores as a wife and mother, and perhaps even as a person, aren't very high. When she goes to church and sees other ideal families, when she hears them bear their testimonies and give thanks for their spiritual and temporal blessings, she sees in her mind the judges holding up scorecards that say 9.9 and 10. When she looks at her own life, her own failed marriage, her own troubled children, she knows that the scores are much lower, and she worries about her place in the kingdom. Well, she needn't worry, for she is as faithful to her covenants in her troubles as the rest of us are in our blessings. True, there are some things she cannot do, but these are a result of her circumstances, not choices pursued by her own free will. And where there is no choice, there can be no condemnation. I have no doubt that when the degree of difficulty is factored in for the life she leads, her crown will shine brighter than many others, for God always factors into his judgment the degree of difficulty. I love that doctrine. I love that idea that God will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. And where there wasn't light and there wasn't understanding, then the consequences of that are lifted. I just This is a beautiful doctrine to me, Mike. That's good. Growing up, I was that. I had so many struggles, and I just want to echo that verse again in Second Nephi 2, verse 3. I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. And I think that as Latter-day Saints, sometimes we get busy in scorecards because, you know, we look at those things, and I think the Lord, He knows. The Lord knows. That's beautiful. Okay, uh, so, so Lehi, he dies and is buried in verse 12 in chapter 4. And then it says in the very next verse that the brothers are going to be angry and we're going to have this split. The split's going to happen. But right after his father dies, we get the Psalm of Nephi. So beautiful. Where, where he says, oh, wretched man that I am. That's verse 17. And it's a beautiful Psalm where I really like it because it shows you a lot of things. It shows you the humanity of Nephi. I think this is so good to read if you have time in a class or with your family to just read it and talk about what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be a prophet? And can you be a good person and have these feelings and these struggles? I mean, look at verse 27. Why am I angry because of my enemy? Why should I yield to sin? Why should I let the evil one have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? It's beautiful. It's also constructed exactly the way ancient Near Eastern Psalms were constructed. And so there's been some scholars that have actually analyzed this from a textual perspective, which we're not going to break out in the podcast, but I'll, we'll put that in the, in the notes. If you want to look at this and say, 
what are some of the fingerprints of the ancient Near East in this psalm? In other words, it's not written by a 19th century, 23-year-old young man. And then go to the 31st verse. Actually, go to verse 30, where he says, I will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. The rock, we're back to the holy of holies. Verse 31, O Lord, will thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me? When he says that, what he's saying, in my opinion, is, will you open the path to your presence, to the Holy of Holies? And that gate was the veil. Will you open that? That I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road. And then we're back to the embrace, verse 33. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? Let me come into your presence. That's an embrace. We're back to the king again, the king being embraced by God. O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? Uh, the Greek word and the Hebrew word for this is the accuser. And in Hebrew, the, the word for the accuser is hasetan. So will you cast the devil out so that I can come into your presence? And I love verse 35. I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. My God will give me if I ask not amiss. He'll tell me what to pray. Therefore, I will lift up my voice unto thee, and I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. And this is first temple again. Nephi is saying, I've come to the rock. I've come to this place where God is. I've been in these holy places. My voice is ascending, and he's extending this invitation to you too. But nowhere in here is he exempt. He's not exempt from all the vicissitudes of life. And so that's the fifth chapter where his brothers are mad. Verse two, they're angry at him. They want to kill him. Why? Verse three, he wants to rule over us and be a king. This is the beginning of the great separation. And the setting, in my opinion, the setting of this is the temple. I think that's the setting because that's kind of what Nephi says in the 16th verse, where he says, we built a temple. And so in this temple context, Nephi is going to be made a king. And if you look in the 26th verse, there's going to be priests and there's going to be teachers. We're going to be talking about the records in the 29th through the 31st verses. And then we're going to be talking, you know, at the very end, he talks a little bit about wars. But this whole chapter is about the temple and about the divorce uh, between these two groups. And I think big picture, it's also what it means to be happy because he even tells you, I love this, where he gives you these, these things that we do to be happy. So first of all, in the fifth verse of chapter five, he's warned, we got to get out of here. So he's, he's in touch with the heavens. And then verse six there's so much on this, but I take verse six to mean there's other people here. Nephi comes to this land. It's not devoid of humanity because he says he departed with his family and he lists them all. And then he says, and those that would go with me. And so there's people that follow him, that make him a king. And then Nephi defines what it means to prosper. In the first Israelite temple religion, prospering was a big deal. And it was connected to fertility family, the heavens, understanding who the king was. And so, well, look in verse 14. We've got the emblems 
of kingship. We've got the sword of Laban. Verse 12, we've got the plates. We also have the Liahona in verse 12. These are emblems of kingship and authority. Look in the 15th verse. He tells them and teaches them to build in the 15th and 16th verse a temple. But let's talk about being happy. Verse 15, he taught them how to work. Verse 17, they were industrious. They labored with their hands and they built a temple. And then finally, the 27th verse. It came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. This is a really good chapter to just have a conversation with your family. What does it mean to be happy? And to me, it means having a connection with God, having a connection with my family, and having good work to do. And doing those things are what make us happy. And so Nephi is showing us, in a temple perspective, what it means to be happy. We're going to, and I don't know if we're going to end on this, but we need to address this, Bryce. Second Nephi 5 verse 21. It's a problem. And we read this here in Second Nephi 5 that he caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, and they had become like unto flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Bryce, um, I would say this, I would never go into a lesson leading with this. But as a teacher, wouldn't you agree that you better have an answer if that comes up? It is not the church's position that uh, those with a darker skin are cursed. Those who lose the Holy Ghost are cursed. Let's not read the words of the Book of Mormon and assume literal when they may very well have been symbolic. Nicodemus made a mistake when Jesus said you need to be born again. He assumed it was literal when it was figurative. Uh, The woman at the well made a mistake when Jesus said, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. She thought it was literal when it was figurative. And I wonder if we ought to be careful not to same, make the same mistake in the Book of Mormon when it says they were cursed with a skin of blackness. That may be more figurative than literal. Uh, it is not the Lord's, especially in light of Second Nephi 26, that are all alike unto God. It is not God's position. It is not the church's position that any dark skin is a curse and a sign of displeasure from God. That is not at all. But I'd be prepared to deal with it because it's in the news. But let's not make the same mistake. Let's not read the words of the Book of Mormon and assume literal when they may very well have been symbolic. Yeah. And I also think it's okay to say that in the 19th century, there were people who had 19th century racist views. Just like if you read Moses, some of his views about the cosmology of the universe was very much 15th or 12th century views BC about the cosmos. And by the way, everybody had those views. Doesn't make it right, but God will speak to you after the manner of your language, DNC 1. So um, I like what you said, Bryce. The same person who wrote these verses that I think are a little bit puzzling in Second Nephi 5, the same person wrote Second Nephi 26.33, that all are alike unto God. And so I want to testify He even that. says black and white. Yeah, black. it's very specific. And so if someone is antagonistic in a classroom, I go straight to Second uh, Nephi 26.33, and I read that verse, and I talk about it, um, and I'm going to throw some things out there that may or may not be right. And so I'm going to put this in the show notes. Ethan Sprout wrote a great article about this idea of the skin being made black or being made white could have a temple contextual setting. And so it's sensitive, but it's a really good article that opens up those possibilities. I think another really easy one is like what Bryce said, is this highly metaphorical and not literal? The reason why I don't believe it's literal 
is because it, that just isn't the reality. Later in Third Nephi, we'll talk about the Lamanites coming into the fold of God, and it said that their skins became white like unto the Nephites. And the reference on that is 3 Nephi 2.15. I don't believe that when they entered the waters of baptism, they had dark skin and they came out looking Scandinavian. I just don't believe that. I also don't believe that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, as 1 Nephi 11.13 says, it says she was, quote, exceedingly fair and white. I think those are descriptions of her spiritually, not necessarily getting into her skin color. I certainly don't know because I wasn't there, but I really do think that Mary would have looked like a typical woman from the Middle East. And so I think that idea that she was fair and white has to do with her spiritually and not necessarily physically. In other words, these are metaphors. These are spiritual descriptions of what it means to come unto Christ. And so I bear witness of that, but I also want to bear witness of this idea, Bryce. I think that we need to give people a pass. And what I mean by that is we should avoid presentism. We shouldn't throw someone under the bus hundreds of years ago that maybe they had views that were incorrect just because we're so enlightened. Because what will people say about us in 200 years? If we believe article of faith number nine, we believe all that God has revealed. We believe all that he does now reveal. We believe he will yet reveal many. We are the recipients of a hundred plus years of revelation that have come to us individually and to the church. We ought not to judge anyone who was dealing with less light than we have in our day. If article of faith number nine is correct, then we should have more revelation today than they had in the past. We should understand the scriptures better today than anyone has in the past. So be very careful to judge other people by the light that we have and the understanding that we have. Yes, it's the same book. It's the same book of scripture. And yes, they could have interpreted it the way we do, but we have the benefit of years of study and revelation that's coming and enlightenment. And so let's not judge anyone else based on the light that we have. It is the church's position that no one with any type of skin color is any different than anyone else. There's no discrepancy. Second Nephi 26, all are alike unto God. Amen. Um, with that, I just want to close out with a couple thoughts. I really do appreciate um, what's happening here in the text, but I just want to say this, and I maybe said this a ton of times, but if you're a first-time listener, I, just, I think it's important that you hear this. Um, this is not a construction of a 23-year-old imaginative young man in upstate New York. It is riddled, uh, especially this fifth chapter, with temple imagery and kingship ideas. This whole chapter as a temple setting it's kingship, it's a relationship to God, and it's a moving forward of family. In the next few chapters, 6 through 10, in Jacob's narrative, is going to be set in that temple. And so we'll talk about that next time. And with that, um, I leave you my testimony. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.